Please turn to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel chapter 22. The title of my sermon this morning is Turning from God to Idols. Turning from God to idols or to idolatry. Our message ties back to our previous message as I continue on this detour that we are on together. Our previous message on how God created man in his own image. Man created by God, male and female, he created them. And we looked at several points Man created by God, man created for God, man created by God, male and female, and man's consequential fall, man's only solution, and that, of course, being Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior and salvation, through Him and by Him alone. When we consider the fall of man, as we did before we get to Ezekiel, just as a way of introduction for us, we'll be in Ezekiel chapter 22, we'll be in Romans chapter one and we will be also in Psalm 106. Those will be our main texts for this morning. We consider the fall of man. Adam disobeyed God, as we, as we know, and he fell. He revered something else instead of God. Idolatry is revering or worshiping anything or anyone other than the one true God. We find in redemptive history from the garden onward, a cyclical history of an individual or a society that wavers from turned from a disposition of being to the one true God and turning to idols. And then sometimes there is repentance, and God hears the cries of his people and turns their hearts back to him once again. Our nation, the United States of America, is an example of a society that has in many ways started on the correct foundation. Even as the arguments today will be that a biblical worldview is something new in this nation, or the argument is, or some would say that Christianity is something that has been forced upon this nation, that's really laughable, that is ignorant, and that is foolish. Actually, it's, it's not true. You cannot force Christianity upon anyone. It's by grace we are saved through faith. Second, it's not Christianity that's being forced upon America. It is wokeism, secularism, transgenderism, Marxism, just to name a few. These are the ones being forced on a nation that had its roots, that has its roots based in many ways on Christianity. And, as I mentioned last time, we have receipts for that, do we not? And thankfully, no one would seek to destroy any of those, right? To destroy any history of our country. A few examples. I'd encourage you as well to listen to Vody Bauckham's message on Christian nationalism. That is a phrase you need to understand what the definition is. And you need to understand the proper definition of that. And he gives an explanation of what that is. And so does Tom Askell. You can just go to YouTube, Founders Ministry, Vody Bauckham, Tom Askell, and they'll explain, they did a conference and they explained that very adeptly. And this sermon is not about that phrase, Christian nationalism, but this, what I'm going to say, came from Bodibacham's sermon, and it reminded me of things that I have learned, and I just want to present them to you, considering the roots of our nation. Mayflower Compact, 1620, encourage you to read that. State of Connecticut, founded by Puritans, Christians. State of Georgia was officially a Protestant state, All public officials had to be Protestant. 
Maryland was founded by Catholics originally. Massachusetts was a Puritan Congregationalist colony. New Hampshire agreed to be governed by godly and Christian leaders. New York codified religious liberty for all Christians. New Jersey, public office holders had to be Protestant. Rhode Island, Protestant. South Carolina, Protestant. Virginia was Anglican. So whatever anyone wants to say, when we have the receipts and we can look, America has Christian roots. America has never been perfect. We understand that. Christianity does not call for sinless perfectionism, thankfully, because they would not be good for any of us. But we need to consider the roots of our nation in contrast to the dead branches of today. As we consider a nation that has started, at least, with a focus on the one true God and has turned to idolatry. Our text to look at this morning, Ezekiel 22, to begin. Father, I look to you, O God, this morning. I need the help of the Holy Spirit of God. I come here as a weak vessel. I come here as just a man. I pray you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that you would give me unction from on high. I have uh, no thinking that I could even ever preach another message. This, let this be an urgency for us, for me as well, as we consider the Word of God today. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 1 through 16, just a little background, and I'll, give it, I'll read it from the expositor's commentary. Um, it says the following, Though Israel's history of wickedness demanded discipline. We see that in uh, chapter 20 through 24 of Ezekiel. It was the abominations of contemporary Israel and her rulers that had ignited the punishment. Since the people had failed to see this fact, God directed Ezekiel to deliver three uh, messages of judgment to make this clear one more time. And as we look at these texts, I want us in our, in our uh, sanctified imagination, I want us to uh, consider our context and see the parallels of where we are as a society and the history of our nation. The first uh, judgment message from Ezekiel in verse, uh, verse 1 through verse 16 details the manner in which the nation, led by her leaders in the capital city, Jerusalem, had broken the Mosaic Covenant. Now remember, Ezekiel ministered a prophet and a priest, and in a period of international turmoil and unrest, combined with idolatry, immorality, and apostasy. Does that sound familiar at all? Does that sound... uh, does that any way have a parallel to what we would consider today? Excuse me. First point, the infiltration of idolatry. The infiltration of idolatry. Verse 1, chapter 22, Ezekiel. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then cause her to know all of her abominations. Israel's history of wickedness, warranted discipline, warranted judgment. God directed Ezekiel to proclaim messages of judgment, to preach to them the law of God in which they had broken, and the consequences of that, the breaking of the first and second commandments, which resulted really in a domino effect. You've heard the term trickle-down economics. Maybe you studied that in the 80s. Uh, There's a phrase uh, that I heard one time from a secular individual, but it makes a lot of sense, trickle-down immorality. When you consider uh, when one turns from the one true God and turns to idolatry and that path continues, you will have a trickle-down effect of all kinds of sin. And that's what we see in these texts that we will look at. 
specifically, this society that Ezekiel was proclaiming to was a murderous society. We see that in several texts that we will go through. Verse 3, you shall say, thus says the Lord God, a city shedding blood in her midst, so that her time will come. And that makes idols contrary to her interest for defilement. So get that, a city shedding blood, a city given over to idolatry. And Ezekiel saying, there, there will be consequences for you. Consequences are coming. Various means of idolatry, various ways the, inhabited, the inhabitants of Jerusalem committed murder. The underlying cause of bloodshed was the idolatry in Jerusalem. So disobedience to God's law, recognizing that there were uh, <clears throat> sins of the people in Jerusalem and the sins of the leaders as well. So they were in bad shape with their uh, idolatrous behavior and sinfulness. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. And in verse 4 of chapter 22 for us, you have become guilty by the blood which you have shed and defiled by your idols which you have made. Thus you have brought your day near and have come to your years. Therefore I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mocking to all the lands. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you, you of ill repute, full of turmoil. The idolatry of Israel. Notice how he says, he points the finger and he says, you. There's responsibility for you, he is saying. You have done this. Well, what is described? We just read these verses. Israel turning from God to idols, idolatry. Ralph Alexander, in, his, in the Expositor's commentary, says this. The acts of idolatry and bloodshed had brought God's judgment near. Jerusalem had come of age for judgment. She would become a reproach to the surrounding nations, both far and near. They would laugh at her miserable state and her infamous reputation. When a righteous people follow the world's ways, as Judah had done, the world ends up laughing at her. Let's consider a parallel. When a nation that was once respected, when a nation that had roots, in whatever way we want to say it, but we see that those roots were there. When a nation goes from that to where our nation is today, in many ways, a laughing stock to the rest of the world. Makes us wonder if the world is laughing at where we are as a nation. But then we see every nation has their problems, do they not? Verse 6 through 13, we see this trickle-down effect. The idolatry of Israel led them to further manner of all sin. Look at verse 6. Behold, the rulers of Israel, each according to his power, have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. Men of wickedness, as a whole, within Jerusalem, were evil rulers. We can study Manasseh, Jehoiakim, uh, Prince Zedekiah. Each ruler took his power as far as he could, and then some. Does that sound familiar? Specifically, breaking the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Look at verse 7. They have treated father and mother lightly within you. The alien they have oppressed in your midst. The fatherless and the widow they have wronged in you. The rulers ignored authority and place of parents, which led to destruction. A society today that we would live in would never do such a thing, would they? Evil, wicked rulers. 
Verse 8. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. Despise the holy things of God. A violation of the second and third commandment. Profaned his, his Sabbaths. Fourth commandment. Profaned with zeal. In verse 9, slanderous men have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood, and in, in you they have eaten at the mountain shrines. In your midst they have committed acts of lewdness. And in 10 and 11, if you have uncovered their father's nakedness, in you they have humbled her who was unclean in her menstrual impurity. One has committed abomination with his neighbor's wife, and another has lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law, and another in you has humbled his sister, his father's daughter. And in verse 12, In you they have taken bribes to shed blood. You have taken interest in profits, and you have injured your neighbors for gain by oppression. And you have forgotten me, declares the Lord God. So we see a premeditated murder from the top, trickle-down effect, more immorality, prospering through bribes and illegitimate gain. And then verse 12, the poignant statement that stands out, you have forgotten me, declares the Lord God. Alexander again says, when one forgets God and leaves his ways, the path into every kind of abomination opens before him. Which really will lead us eventually to Romans 1 and the consequences of a society that abandons God, as Ernest Reisinger said, a a consequence of a society that abandons God will be a society abandoned by God. In sovereign judgment to that society. In verse 13 through 16, the verdict is in, and the gavel is down. Behold then, I smite my hand at your dishonest gain, which you have acquired, and at the bloodshed which is among you. Can your heart endure, can your hands be strong in the days that I will deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will act. I will scatter you among the nations, and I will disperse you through the lands, and I will consume your uncleanness from you. You will profane yourself in the sight of the nations, and you will know that I am the Lord. You see, God will get glory no matter what. The consequences for them, the scattering, the dispersion, primary purpose for people is to know that God is God. It brings us back to the introduction, the the preface of the Ten Commandments, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And as we have discussed this on Wednesday night, the Lord our God who brought us as Christians out of our sin, out of our living in Egypt that describes who we were before out of our slavery to sin and has brought us in the newness of life, saving us by the cross, by Christ's work on the cross. So there's idolatry in the garden. We saw that with Adam, Genesis 1 through 3. Adam's focus shifted from God to himself and to really Satan's influence. Idolatry in Jerusalem, we just went over that, albeit briefly. Ezekiel 22. Jerusalem, the leaders, the people, focus shifted from God to idols. And then as we consider parallels, and as we will look at parallels when we get to Romans, Lord willing, as we move along, not today really, a little bit we will get there. I encourage you to turn there now to Romans chapter 1. But we will cover it in further detail God willing. Next, Lord's Day. So we have the infiltration of idolatry. Then we have the inevitable outcome of idolatry. Inevitable outcome 
of idolatry. Look at Romans 1, verse 18 through 32. I'm going to look at that section. We consider this section of Scripture in Romans. Paul seems to affirm that idolatry is the root sin of all other sin. Okay, so consider that. Listen to G.K. Beale's argument. I mentioned him before when I considered his argument on uh, Adam in the garden. He says this, When one turns from trusting God to trust in some part of God's creation, then the heart becomes darkened, and all manner of sins follow from this. Again, he says, When one turns from trusting God to trust in some part of God's creation, then the heart becomes darkened, and all manner of sin follow from this. And Paul elaborates uh, in verse 24 through 28, and he continues on in verse 29 and following. But Paul sees idolatry to be the essence of what takes place here, of what follows here. Again, the trickle-down effect, turning from God. And since Adam and Eve were created and fell, idolatry has been prevalent in the heart of man from the get-go. Consider verse 18. Let's just look at that to start. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is what? Is evident within them. God has made it known to them. For God made it evident to them. And verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So then again, we have the creation God's creation showing that there is indeed He as Creator. Again, uh, Beale indicates the following. All humanity, including Adam and Eve, are indicted here. Since they have been among all humans and have committed part of the unrighteousness of sinners. And he's citing verse 18. And who have been without excuse since the creation of the world because they also have been among those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Again, in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all. Condemnation of all men without Christ. Condemnation not for what they do not know, but for what they do know. His wrath revealed because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Man knows God exists. It's evident within them. We, we looked at the law written on the heart of man. God gives us a conscience as well. God made himself known to them through creation, his invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature, clearly seen. As a result, there is no excuse to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For they know God. Knew, know that God exists but did not honor him as God, did not give thanks to God, verse 21, futile in their speculations, foolish hearts becoming darkened, did not honor God as they ought. Professing to be wise, but yet indeed they are fools. And that's really who we encounter when we encounter non-Christians who want to debate and go back and forth about the God the one true God, according to the Scriptures. Now, they may sound like they have a great argument, and they may sound so polished and wonderful in their speech. They profess to be wise, but although they are fools, they think they know better than God, they think they know better than His ways, yet indeed they are fools. Exchanging the glory, verse 23 of the incorruptible God for an image in a form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Just like Adam, Genesis 1 through 3, just like Israel, uh, Ezekiel 22, idolatry is where it started. Same here, the description of a people or individual that reject the one true God to worship a false God. When we read the New Testament, as we try to understand 
what we read, the, the context and the thinking behind uh, such of the New Testament, of, such as Paul or Peter. We understand that Paul, along with the other writers of the New Testament, were steeped in a knowledge of the Old Testament. They knew the, the scrolls. They knew the, the Old Testament well. So allusions and illustrations and direct quotations are found throughout the New Testament. We find here in Romans chapter 1, allusions to Jeremiah chapter 2, and also of Psalm 106 and verse 20, which we're going to turn to right now. I invite you to do that. As you're turning there, I'm going to read to you Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. I'll just read Jeremiah 2, 11. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Okay, so we'll be going back to Romans, but here we are in Psalm 106 now. So when we consider these texts, you say, okay, why are we going through this? Well, when we consider these texts, we consider the, the history of turning to idols, we consider the consequences, we consider sin that follows, we should look at our society and not have any questions, really. The infiltration of idolatry, the inevitable outcome of idolatry, and then the infection of idolatry. Thirdly, the infection of idolatry. Psalm 106 begins and ends with Praise to the Lord. If I can find verse 1, I'll read it. Now, here we are over here. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord? Or who can show forth all of His praise? How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory in your inheritance. So we see beginning and ending with praise of the Lord. And then verse 6 through 39, there's eight specific sins that I will go over quickly. Eight specific sins spread out over three periods of Israel's history. Eight specific sins spread out over three periods of Israel's history. Now, when we consider the sins of our society today, we don't just say, oh, they started yesterday. No, there's been a history. There's been a downgrade. There has been a trickling down. And we could say, wow, this started here, this started there, um, this was abolished there, thankfully, and this continued here, and this continued here, and then this is new here, the history of a nation. And with Israel's history, eight specific sins. The time of leaving Egypt, the years in the desert, and thirdly, the occupation of the promised land. Verse 6, we have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindness, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Verse 7, root sin. One of the root sins or chief sins. This is the sins when they were in Egypt. They did not remember the one true God, but turned from God. They rebelled from God. And we will find a cycle. A cycle that can be all too familiar to us as well. God saves us. Things are great, and then opposition comes, or a sin in our life comes, and we rebel. And then we get a perspective at times that life is hard and painful. And then God lifts us up out of the pit, and then we praise Him once again, and then the cycle can continue in our life. Look at verse 8. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. 
Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up, and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. Sins in the desert with rebellion towards God, still fresh. And in verse 13 through 15, we see sins of discontentment. They sang his praise. You see that in verse 12? Yes, they believed his words. They sang his praise, but they quickly forgot his works. And they did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. God provided their needs. He provided food. They were not content, though, with the manna, were they? God sent them quail, but God also disciplined them by sending a plague. Numbers chapter, uh, or yeah, verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 33. How about us? How about us as Americans? How discontent can we be? No matter what we go through, we must remember that we deserve much worse than we have. We deserve, as individuals, the fiery hell. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment for eternity. But by the grace of God, He has saved us. So we see the infection of idolatry, and we see these sins. They did not remember, but instead they rebelled. And then the sin of discontentment, And then, in verse 16, the sin of envy or jealousy or coveting. When they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and engulfed the company of Abraham, and the fire blazed up in their company and the flame consumed the wicked. When Korah and 250 of his minions rebelled against Moses and Aaron due to envy, number 16. The consequences we see in verse 17 and 18. God judged the men. The earth opened up, swallowed them whole and their households. Imagine seeing that. Fire came out of the tabernacle and consumed the 250. But yet the people still rebelled. So God sent a plague that killed over 14,000 before Aaron was able to intervene. How about us? We see the judgment. We see consequences of God dealing with our rebellious hearts or the rebellious hearts of others. Do we learn or do we still rebel against the Lord? And then we see the sin of idolatry, specific idolatry. Verse 19, this is a familiar text for us when we consider what this is about. Verse 19, they made a calf in Horeb, they worshipped a molten image, thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him. And of course that is a picture of Christ standing in the breach for us to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness and they would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. Again, the sin of idolatry, specific idolatry, Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God, but the folks at the bottom were impatient and wanted another God to lead them out. They made themselves an idol, and this is what is written. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The worship of this idol led to further sins 
led to wickedness, and as the text says, them being out of control. And we look, where did it start? Where did it start? And where they were now? Paul quotes part of verse 20 in Romans 1, which will stay where, where we are here. It speaks specifically of the sin of those at Sinai, Yeah, Paul broadens the scope in showing all mankind's sin in general. Sin of unbelief, verse 24 through 27. And in verse 28 here in Psalm 106, sin of apostasy. Look at that, verse 28. They joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds. And the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interposed so that the plague was stayed. And it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. 24 through 27, the sin of unbelief. 28 through 31, the sin of apostasy or turning away, joining themselves to other gods. Eight sacrifices offered to the dead. And in verse 32 through 33, we see sin of rebellion. They also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah, so that it went hard with Moses on their account because they were rebellious against his spirit and spoke rashly with his lips. Then verse 34 through 39, the sin of compromise. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. We've seen this before. And they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood, and they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. They were warned of the Canaanites in Exodus chapter 34, were warned that they would be a snare to them. Why? Because their sin of idolatry. Idolatry led to other sin. In verse 37 stands out poignantly. Idol worship is exposed as service to demons who are operating behind the idols, as Richard Phillips says, sacrificing children to paganism. Consider that. You say, oh, look how they did that. What nation would do such a thing? Would sacrifice children? So the recap of sin, they did not remember God. They turned from God and rebelled and then led to the sin of discontentment, then led to the sin of envy, jealousy, and coveting, then the sin of idolatry, specific idolatry, as we saw with the golden calf, then the sin of unbelief, then the sin of apostasy, then the sin of rebellion. Listen as Richard Phillips says this, those most detestable sins of Israel's history are mirrored in our culture, speaking of us, by the mass industrial slaughter of preborn children. By this sin alone, the once Christian West has become unclean before God and urgent peril of his judgment. Add to that what I mentioned last week, add to that the transgender idolatry that is being pressed that is being cultivated on children today to butcher them up and destroy them, who they are, who God created them to be. So we realize the urgency of our hour. Psalm 106, verse 20 uh, laid next to Romans chapter 1, verse 2 and 5. Psalm 106, verse 19 and 20, they made a golden calf and worshipped it. Romans chapter 1, verse 25, they worshipped and served their creature rather than the creator. We see where Paul was getting this from in Psalm 106. Psalm 106, they exchanged their glory for an image of an ox that eats grass. Consider that for a moment. Just consider that. I was thinking of that. Consider worshiping an ox, an animal that eats grass. It's amazing. But by the grace of God, we worship the one true God. 
If it wasn't God working in our hearts, if God did not sovereignly save us, we would be worshiping someone else and something else as well. well let us never forget that. Don't ever get over that God saved your soul and who you were before. What is the overarching sin, though, representing, represented in these two passages? When we consider Psalm 106, Romans chapter 1, idolatry. Just as I mentioned G.K. Bill's argument, Adam fell, just as when Jerusalem ch- chose to worship false gods instead of the one true God, exchanging the truth for lies is catastrophic. Exchanging the glory of God for idolatry is what leads a society to other sins. When people worship the creature rather than the creator, God will abandon that society eventually. And my impression, my understanding, what has really been impressed upon my heart and mind, and I could be wrong, is that is where we are as a nation. Just as there was given a redeemer for Adam and Eve, there was given a prophet named Ezekiel to bring forth the message to the people to return back to the Lord. I'm no prophet. I'm just a weak man standing behind a pulpit. But my message is the same for us. That we are sure that we are turning to the Lord. And for any here who would be not serving God to turn to the Lord. Psalm 106.23 explains that God used Moses to stand in the breach before God as a mediator. And then the response that we saw in verse 40 through 43, God's, maybe we didn't see it, I don't know if I went there, I kind of got sidetracked. But nevertheless, verse 40 through 43 explains God's response. Judgment. Discipline. In Israel's history, many times we see the Lord responding to sinful humanity, inflicting judgments, inflicting pain that is due, really. And then, verse 44 through 46, we see compassion and deliverance. Compassion and deliverance. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. And he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. On the basis of who God is and on the basis of his covenant love, he hears the cries of his people. He answers the cries of his people. So we have the infiltration of idolatry, inevitable outcome of idolatry, the infection of idolatry, and then fourthly, the independence from idolatry and dependence on an immutable God. Independence from idolatry, dependence upon an immutable God or an unchanging God. I had a lot of eyes going here, so I figured I'd go with immutable. What is our hope? What is our hope when we consider where we are as a society? As a whole, we can say, well, what's the hope that's really going to change things? Right? Again, many promises, many people say, though this is what's at, where it's at, this is what's, uh, what's needed. Well, we need God. Revival is really our only hope as a society. God moving upon us as individuals. God moving upon us as a church. God moving upon people as a, as in a state, as a nation. And for us, it's our, our only deliverance, as we know, and for everyone, is in Christ. And this prayer in verse 47 is one that we can pray as Christians with great boldness. Save us, O Lord our God, 
and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and, and glory in your praise. Oh God, you have saved us already. We are, we are Christians, O oh Lord. Save us, though, O oh Lord our God, from all of this, that we would give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. As we are pilgrims afflicted in many ways in this world, Anyone not afflicted at all in this world? For those of us who are in Christ, He has delivered us from our sins, forgiven our trespasses. And we are currently being changed as we are conformed into the image of Christ. We will be delivered ultimately into glory. You say, well, independence from idolatry, dependence on a mutable God, where do we start? Well, it starts with repentance, right? turning from whatever sin that is inhibiting our worship or inhibiting our relationship with the one true God, crushing idols under our feet. And when we don't have the strength by God's grace, when we're unwilling to, we ask God, please crush these under your feet. Crush these idols for me, O Lord. So repentance is the start. Revival is needed, top-down, God to move among us, but also bottom-up, us to rely and depend on God. Realize each day our dependence on the one true God, on Him. Realizing revival will not happen without prayer. What is also needed is a reformation, semper reformanda, always reforming. Always reforming our lives to Christ by His grace and for His glory. What else is needed? Renewal. Fresh start by His grace. Every morning you wake up, Christian, you have another fresh start until the Lord takes you home. If he, maybe He'll take you home that day. Some of you may die today. Go home to be with the Lord if you're a Christian. You'll make it ahead of the rest of us. We'll miss you. Renewal, a fresh start by His grace, because of His mercy. Renewal of our thinking, our minds. Renewal of our minds according to His Word. Realization. Realization, without Christ, we can do nothing. Realization that we need Him every hour in our lives. Realization that we must rely upon His grace and His help, not in our own strength. And another R for us, remain lowly. Remain lowly. When we remain low, we will always be looking up. A low view of our ability a high view of God and His ability. Again, the infiltration of idolatry, whether it be in our lives or in a society as a whole, that, we had, that started out well in many ways. Inevitable outcome of idolatry, the trickle-down sins that come from idolatry, the infection of idolatry, and what is needed is a cure to that infection. That's Christ, turning to Christ. And living a life independent from idolatry and dependence on an immutable God. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that those of us in here who are Christians, we used to, in whatever way, serve false gods. We had idols that we served, and you were not even in the forefront of our mind. But you have saved us, and you have changed us. And now we worship you, the one true God. As we consider what we looked at, Ezekiel 22 and Psalm 106 and Romans chapter 1, 
it's easy for us to, to see this and say, oh, we could never do that. But we know a steady study of our own hearts would say quite the opposite. For we are prone to idols. We're prone to turning from you, worshiping ourselves, prone to be lethargic in the things of Christ. We need you every hour, O Lord. God, as we consider the state of our nation and we consider the trickle-down effect of, of sin, of idolatry, of really turning from foundations and, and roots. And we see the destruction of children. We see violence increased. We see false teaching increased. We see sin increasing. We see temptations in our own lives. Our only answer is Jesus Christ and your word. We need your grace. Thank you that we do not have to live life apart from you. God, we need you every hour. Help us to provide the one remedy, the one true and real remedy for this society, for all manners of sin. We thank you that there are people that want to do good and want to change things and and help people and do things that are totally outside the scope and in a lot of ways, people want to do good. And we see people want things to change. But unless there's heart change, individually, and if you be pleased to bring revival, then we will see no true change. The answer is still the same. All authority has been given to Christ. He calls us, you call us, O God, to preach the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And that is what changes individuals, and that is what will change the society. For your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.